On the morning of April 14, 1994, seven empty chairs sat before the House Subcommittee on Health and the Environment. They were reserved for the CEOs of the world's biggest tobacco companies, but Congressman Henry Waxman wasn't sure that any of the executives would actually show. For years, Waxman and his colleagues had chased after the industry's bigwigs, but couldn't compel them to answer for Big Tobacco's misdeeds. Yet just after 9 a.m., all seven executives strolled in. The congressman was shocked. This was Waxman's chance to get some answers. Conclusive research had long linked cigarettes to lung cancer and other lethal diseases. And that wasn't the only thing on Waxman's mind. The congressman had heard rumors that tobacco companies were adding extra nicotine to cigarettes. This addition would make them more addictive and therefore more deadly. At the hearing, for the first time ever, Waxman's committee had the opportunity to get answers. The industry executives would be under oath to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. But being honest had never stopped the tobacco industry before. One by one, the executives were asked if they believed nicotine was addictive. And one by one, they said no. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on America's tobacco industry and its attempts to cover up the dangers of smoking. Cigarettes became a ubiquitous habit by the mid-20th century, and around the same time, a scientific consensus emerged that they could kill you. Last time, we talked about how the tobacco industry transformed the global economy in the 20th century and how the advent of mass-producing cigarettes made rates of lung cancer and other smoking-related illnesses skyrocket. But all the while, Big Tobacco's devious marketing campaigns sought to recruit new cigarette users and keep old ones lighting up. So today, we'll explore a few conspiracy theories about Big Tobacco. We'll see whether they intentionally marketed their products to children to recruit new, lifelong customers, and whether cigarette makers manipulated cigarettes to make them more addictive. We'll also discuss how industry executives funded phony science to cast doubt about the dangers of smoking. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, 
don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Cigarette vendors know they offer a hot commodity. The skinny smokes are the perfect vehicle to inhale nicotine, tobacco's most coveted chemical, straight into the user's bloodstream. The smoke goes down smooth, providing smokers a moment of calm, at least temporarily. Once a cigarette is burned out, though, it doesn't take long for users to feel antsy and irritable. The quickest and easiest solution is simply another cigarette. This was the exact craving that smokers in the first half of the 1900s faced. Long before they knew it was dangerous, they just knew they wanted more. Cigarettes practically sold themselves. Thanks to relentless research and a bombshell Surgeon General's report, those dangers became common knowledge by the 1960s. And while cigarettes remained popular, sales began to wane. It left tobacco companies with a challenge they'd never faced before. How to get customers that first taste of nicotine before they understood all the risks. They needed to create a nicotine-dependent generation. A potential solution was to target would-be smokers while they were young and especially vulnerable to marketing. One tobacco executive is quoted as saying, They got lips, we want them. Which leads us to conspiracy theory number one. Big Tobacco intentionally marketed cigarettes to children. Habits, by definition, stick with you. Data shows that most smokers take their first puff early on in life. According to the CDC, nearly nine out of every 10 daily cigarette users first tried smoking by the age of 18. And a 2012 Surgeon General's report found that more than one-third of adults who ever smoked 
did so for the first time by age 14. It's obvious why a cigarette company would want to sell a habit-forming product to younger audiences. If you get a customer early, in theory, you'll have them for life. Of course, selling tobacco to children is unethical. Cigarette sellers themselves would tell you that. As an Action on Smoking and Health report put it, quote, This is the paradox of the industry. It is both socially and illegally unacceptable to advertise to underage teenagers and children, yet it is this precise age group that it has to advertise to in order to survive. Last time, we specifically pointed out an example of this with the old Joe Camel ads. In 1988, R.J. Reynolds created the infamous cartoon Camel with a cigarette in his mouth, doing things that most teenage boys found aspirational. Riding a motorcycle in a leather jacket, posing in front of an attractive woman in Hollywood. The ad's tagline was, quote, smooth character. Research showed these ads made Camel brand cigarettes exponentially more popular with minors. Before the cartoon ran, researchers say that fewer than 1% of people under 18 smoked Camels. Yet after the campaign, Camels became the cigarette of choice for up to a third of youth smokers. According to a survey of more than 200 preschoolers, 90% of six-year-olds and a third of three-year-olds correctly linked Old Joe Camel to a cigarette. Old Joe Camel was just one example of tobacco advertising that hit home with younger people. While camels were growing in popularity among younger audiences, Philip Morris's Marlboros were the cigarette of choice among children. Over the years, the company has spent hundreds of millions of dollars in ads for magazines with high youth readerships. Marlboro also became closely associated with race car driving. Starting in 1972, the brand painted its logo on Formula One cars. This meant all of the kids who watched the races were also following what looked like a zooming cigarette pack on wheels on TV. And as it turns out, sports are one of the stickiest ways tobacco marketing reaches kids. According to a study from the Health Education Research Journal, roughly a third of 10- and 11-year-olds could name cigarette brands who sponsored athletics. This kind of sponsorship was a devious way for tobacco companies to bypass the U.S. government ban on television ads of their products. Though the ban took effect in 1971, they could still flaunt their brand on screen. Cigarette sellers also appealed to younger customers by venturing into branded merchandise like clothes and accessories. Customers could buy Philip Morris products and rack up Marlboro Miles, or snag an R.J. Reynolds cigarette and earn camel cash. Such points could be exchanged for T-shirts, hats, and calendars. For cash-strapped teens, this system was ideal. They could grab tobacco merch at what appeared to be lower cost. A 1992 Gallup survey revealed that among adolescents, half of smokers and a quarter of non-smokers owned at least one promotional item from a tobacco company. But tobacco industry executives were quick to separate their marketing's intent from its actual effects. They advertised their products for the same reason every company does, to drum up business. 
From their point of view, as long as they weren't actively targeting kids or breaking any laws, they weren't doing anything wrong. Besides, cigarette leaders have often said that the main catalyst for teen smoking isn't advertising, it's peer pressure. To be fair, that's an undeniable and powerful force behind kids' decision-making. A 2003 pamphlet on teen smoking claimed that nearly two-thirds of 11- to 17-year-old smokers got their first cigarette from a friend. That stat, however, came from a Philip Morris-funded study. And data hasn't been backed up by other studies, as far as we know. In fact, a 1995 Journal of the National Cancer Institute study found that ads are more effective than peer pressure when it comes to getting teens to smoke. So cigarette advertising is more influential than big tobacco is willing to admit. But again, even though marketing campaigns resonated with children, it's tough to gauge whether companies deliberately targeted them. To prove that, we'd need to be privy to the conversations executives had behind closed doors. Thankfully, these discussions aren't a secret anymore. Over the years, lawsuits and whistleblowers have exposed thousands of private cigarette company documents, and they reveal an industry obsessed with reaching teenage markets. In 1974, an internal memo for cigarette company R.J. Reynolds discussed a grim prospect. 14 to 24-year-olds were the future of the cigarette business. It read, quote, Thus, our advertising strategy becomes clear for our established brands. Direct advertising appeal to the younger smokers. Their word choice of younger smokers is telling. For the most part, cigarette companies were careful to use phrases like young adult smokers instead of children in their market research. That makes it tough to prove they explicitly targeted minors. Tobacco executives were just targeting the older part of that age range. But then again, R.J. Reynolds' executives specifically singled out children in documents from 1976. Back then, they were looking for ways to keep a competitive edge in the industry. And internal correspondence seems to reveal that they wanted to launch a new line of cigarettes geared toward the 14 to 18-year-old age group to keep a competitive edge in the industry. In 1978, a memo sent to the CEO of the Lorillard Tobacco Company stated it plainly. The base of our business is the high school student. And 15 years later, an ex-Philip Morris executive even conceded to Reader's Digest that his former company's defense of the old Joe Camel ads was bogus. Of course, a cartoon animal was attractive to kids, he said. Quote, you don't have to be a brain surgeon to work out what's going on. Just look at the ads. Cigarette companies never admitted any wrongdoing, but they did face some consequences for targeting children. In a 1998 settlement between 46 U.S. states and four of the major tobacco companies, the executives agreed to pay out billions of dollars annually to offset smoking-related health care costs. They also promised to never target youth with their advertising, either directly or indirectly. And even still, some ads slipped through the cracks. In the three years after the settlement, magazines like Sports Illustrated and People ran print cigarette ads. 
they reached millions of underage readers. But most readers of those magazines are adults. With any type of media, there are going to be groups that inadvertently consume the content. So reaching kids and explicitly targeting them are two different things. While tobacco companies certainly had data about kids' smoking habits, that doesn't mean they always exploited it. Perhaps there's a chance they targeted early 20-somethings and simply didn't want to stop when they realized younger teens were interested too. If we weren't talking about a greedy industry with a long track record of compulsive lying, I might be more sympathetic. But plenty of those confidential documents showed real intent behind recruiting child smokers. For me, on a scale of 1 to 10, this theory is a perfect 10 out of 10. Big Tobacco absolutely marketed to children. The industry was definitely eager to recruit new, impressionable smokers. It also doesn't take an expert to know that cartoon camels, flashy logos, and coupons for cigarette-branded merchandise appeal more to kids than adults. While we may never know the true extent of the industry's intent, I still think Big Tobacco largely pushed to hook minors. I give this theory an 8 out of 10. Cigarette makers knew how irresistible and addictive nicotine is. And if they could control that chemical, they would make their lethal products even more dangerous. Coming up, what's inside Big Tobacco's cigarettes? Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. In films like Pirates of the Caribbean, they're portrayed as swaggering anti-heroes. In books like Treasure Island, they're fearsome villains. But who were they really? That's the question that Real Pirates, the new Spotify original from Parcast, answers. The whole thing about a pirate ship is that they were heavily manned. But you could have 100 pirates on board, so these are floating violence factories. At the same time, pirates were really fascinating characters, in a way. If you were born poor, you stayed poor. Pirates, on the other hand, they were able to transcend that social boundary. They didn't see themselves just as thieves and brigands. They saw themselves as social revolutionaries. Set sail under the black flag alongside notorious outdoors like Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie and Mary Reed. Join us for episodes airing weekly starting November 15th. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now, back to the story. By the mid-1960s, most smokers knew cigarettes were dangerous, which left Big Tobacco facing a major crisis. In private, 
companies scrambled to make safer versions of cigarettes that produced less tar. The sticky substance forms when tobacco burns. It contains most of the cancer-causing chemicals found in cigarettes. When layers of tar build up inside a chronic smoker's lungs, it can lead to a range of health issues, like chronic bronchitis and emphysema. But that wasn't the industry's only challenge. They needed to minimize tar without sacrificing the chemicals that tempted smokers into lighting that next cigarette. As fate would have it, they stumbled into a lucky coincidence. If a cigarette was marketed as healthier, consumers would indulge in their habit even more than before. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number two. Tobacco companies manipulated their products to keep smokers hooked. Despite denying that cigarettes were dangerous or addictive, tobacco executives poured money into research on how to make them safer. At least, that's the story Philip Morris told when they launched Marlboro Lights in 1972. These so-called low-tar cigarettes were pierced with tiny holes to vent out sticky substances that caused cancer. Consumers who saw them as safer than the regular cigarettes latched on, and Marlboro Lights flew off the shelves. They soon became America's best-selling cigarettes. But as it turns out, low-tar smokes were a hoax. The vented holes just made low-tar cigarette users take longer, harder drags to quench their craving. According to a 1996 American Cancer Society study, lung cancer death rates actually increased when light cigarettes overtook normal ones in popularity. Experts thought this was because the deeper puffs caused carcinogens to travel deeper into smokers' lungs. It's possible that Philip Morris deliberately lied when they said their Marlboro Lights were a healthy alternative. Maybe it was to prevent current smokers from quitting, or to hook in otherwise wary would-be users by advertising a safer product. We can't totally prove that safe cigarettes were specifically designed to draw in smokers, but we can prove that tobacco companies wanted to maximize the addictive qualities of nicotine in their products. Thanks to the treasure trove of leaked industry documents, we know what big tobacco was scheming behind closed doors. Despite the fact that companies in the industry argued that people smoked of their own volition, not a chemical itch, the papers show otherwise. As far back as the early 1960s, executives were aware of how addictive nicotine really was. And they had been brainstorming ways to exploit that ever since. Take an internal R.J. Reynolds document from the 1970s. When researching their competition, the company's scientists figured out that the tobacco blend in Philip Morris's Marlboro cigarettes contained added ammonia. This combination created nicotine that was quickly absorbed into a smoker's bloodstream and then produced a quick hit of extra doses, which made Marlboro's more addictive. The scientists concluded that this method of raising the nicotine content was, quote, deliberate and controlled. But that wasn't the brand's only foray into using research to get the upper hand in the market. In 1980, Philip Morris hired scientist Victor DeNoble to test out nicotine variations that were safer, but just as habit-forming as the other cigarettes on the market. 
DeNoble's research was top secret, likely because he was breaking a private pact that companies in the industry had made with each other, no using lab rats. This alleged agreement had been formed to keep their public denial of the links between smoking and addiction strong, meaning they didn't want to fund research that proved they were lying. Through his research, DeNoble and his team discovered the effects of acetaldehyde, a chemical forged from tobacco smoke. When it's inhaled and enters the brain, it supercharges the effects of nicotine, making people's cravings even stronger. In DeNoble's studies, rats took a hit of the combo drug over four times as often as they did nicotine alone. When these findings were presented to Philip Morris executives, they were reportedly ecstatic. The results suggested that the ratio of acetaldehyde and nicotine could be optimized to create an irresistible cigarette. But there was a problem. Marlboro's growing pile of lawsuits. Numerous smokers were suing the company because they couldn't kick their habit. Philip Morris had always said that cigarettes didn't meet the criteria of an addictive drug. But DeNoble's research meant the company's executives knew cigarettes were addictive. So, Philip Morris leaders suppressed DeNoble's research. He wasn't allowed to publish his findings in a medical journal, and they went so far as to instruct him to murder the rats he tested, all before firing him. Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds weren't the only companies looking to make their products more addictive either. According to a 1998 AP story, which reported on leaked documents from British American Tobacco, the company spent nearly two decades creating a supercharged version of the tobacco plant. They hoped to max out on the nicotine content while making the habit tough to kick. Yet a company spokesperson said that research was speculative. Apparently, they wanted to better understand the science of smoking and weren't applying their findings to their production line. However, the company's own reports revealed that British American Tobacco actually cultivated this mutant plant, mysteriously codenamed Y1. As of 1998, The stuff was in nine different cigarette brands sold in the United States. It's hard not to see how similar this was to the way the tobacco industry talked about marketing to children. They were gathering information that certainly helped their business model, but avoiding admitting it outright. That's true. The argument for both was, we looked into it, but we didn't actually go through with it. If that line of defense rang shallow with marketing to kids, it feels like even more of a lie here. In the 1970s, tobacco executives said they manipulated cigarette chemicals to make the products safer, but that was just a facade. It's hard to believe they didn't know low-tar cigarettes were just as harmful. The leaked documents even show how they knew the science behind their products better than anyone. They were looking for a loophole to keep health-conscious smokers buying and non-smokers interested in a safer alternative. For me, this theory is a 10. I have to agree. Philip Morris knew the soaring sales of Marlboro Lights compared to regular cigarettes proved customers would keep smoking to satisfy their addiction. This, coupled with the proof that products were spiked with ammonia and Victor DeNoble's research, 
is pretty clear. Big Tobacco deliberately doctored its products to keep customers smoking. It's a 10 for me as well. It may seem pretty unbelievable that Big Tobacco pushed cigarettes towards minors and heightened the product's drug-like temptations and got away with all of it for so long. But there's actually a pretty easy answer that most anti-smoking advocates can give. The industry paid people to lie. Coming up, Big Tobacco cons the world into doubting the truth. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now back to the story. In the 1950s, Big Tobacco faced its most enduring crisis yet. Researchers proved that cigarette tar caused fatal disease. If tobacco executives didn't act swiftly, their customers would panic and stop buying. So on December 15, 1953, the leaders of America's biggest cigarette makers met with a PR firm to discuss strategy. They couldn't disprove the findings per se, but they could poke holes in them, enough to leave significant doubt in smokers' minds. Which brings us to our final conspiracy theory. Over the decades, Big Tobacco funded fake science to lie about smoking's dangers. From the 1950s onwards, scores of scientists went to bat on tobacco's behalf. No matter what the issue, cigarettes and cancer, secondhand smoke, the addictiveness of nicotine, the industry managed to find an expert who'd question most of the popular science. These researchers defended cigarettes in the press, via scientific studies, and even in court as expert testimony in lawsuits. And to their credit, it was hard not to believe these tobacco sympathizers. After all, many of them were esteemed scientists with sterling credentials. For example, Frederick Seitz, who helped build the atomic bomb and served as science advisor to NATO, he eventually took a leading role with R.J. Reynolds' science department. Assisting him was Martin J. Klein, a cancer specialist at UCLA's medical school who created the first genetically modified mouse. The two men were respected figures in the science community. If they questioned the link between cigarettes and lung disease, R.J. Reynolds figured Americans would believe them. It didn't take long for the entire tobacco industry to hop onto this mindset and hatch a coordinated propaganda campaign. 
After that fateful meeting in December 1953, several cigarette companies formed the Tobacco Industry Research Committee. Their goal was to counter scientific consensus about smoking's harms and put out more pro-cigarette messaging. The industry leaders at the meeting originally thought they could peddle existing research, but there wasn't much to support their aims. So at the behest of PR representatives, the tobacco companies decided to fund their own research. This was unheard of at the time. The studies weren't designed to be impartial. In fact, that was the point. Executives wanted to sway public opinion on the issue by sharing literature that looked legitimate, but really just cast doubt on actual science. Big Tobacco released numerous publications contending that cigarettes weren't dangerous and that science was still up in the air. Then, they pretended the issue was a debate, forcing impartial observers to look at both sides. But that's not really how science works. By the 1960s, the harmfulness of cigarettes had been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. In private, the tobacco companies even admitted that. As early as 1953, an R.J. Reynolds memo acknowledged the relationship between smoking and lung cancer. But in public, they suppressed that kind of evidence. Instead, companies used the remaining unknowns of the science of smoking to try to discredit what was already true. While the link between cigarettes and cancer had been established, there were still aspects of tobacco use that scientists hadn't fully explored. So the Tobacco Industry Research Committee used them as an opportunity to hit reporters, doctors, and legislators with a barrage of what about questions. For instance, scientists hired by Big Tobacco posited that air pollution or asbestos exposure could just as easily be a factor in lung cancer. They also wondered why cigarettes only spiked cancer rates in lungs when the products also touched a smoker's lips, tongue, throat, and nose. Of course, studies over the years have linked smoking to cancers throughout the body. But such data wasn't available in the early days of the tobacco executive's propaganda campaign. Since so many factors can cause cancer, questions like these were tough to answer. And journalists, compelled to give equal attention to both sides of a debate, could only report on this sham research as if it were credible. The truth was, though, whether cigarettes were harmful wasn't up for a genuine debate. But Big Tobacco certainly made it seem that way. The industry marketed doubt relentlessly. The committee prepared a propaganda booklet called A Scientific Perspective on the Cigarette Controversy and sent it to nearly 200,000 doctors. Then they shipped out 15,000 more to journalists and members of Congress. Not only had the industry succeeded in drumming up a fake debate, Big Tobacco began pumping sums of money into its disinformation efforts. By the mid-1980s, the industry had funded more than $100 million into their pro-cigarette research. That kind of cash paid for a lot of scientists who presented themselves as objective experts in legal matters. Take the 2014 court case against Philip Morris. 
the company was accused of deceptively marketing their low-tar Marlboro lights as healthier. So, they hired scientists from consulting firms to testify that low-tar cigarettes were safer than normal ones. But as we learned, that wasn't true. A former research director from Philip Morris himself testified in 2014 that the actual differences between Marlboro Lights and run-of-the-mill Marlboro Reds were negligible. The low-tar saga was just one example of supposed expert opinions that touted research favorable to the tobacco industry. In a separate court case from 1997, a non-smoking flight attendant named Norma Broen sued Philip Morris. She was seeking damages since she got lung cancer at age 32, which she thought was from secondhand smoke. The cigarette company went to a familiar face for expert testimony, Martin J. Klein, the UCLA doctor and cancer expert. He was a paid consultant on tobacco litigation before the Broen case. He also gave lectures to cigarette industry lawyers and sat on R.J. Reynolds' scientific advisory board. During the Norma Broen trial, Klein was outwardly evasive about the dangers of secondhand smoke. And in his testimony, he wouldn't even admit to the hazards of cigarette use at all. Broen's lawyer asked Klein if he was paid for research he did on behalf of Big Tobacco. Klein said the industry gave him over $3 million over the course of a decade. But from his point of view, it wasn't payment. It was a gift. That's a pretty generous gift, seeing as how helpful Klein was in litigating for tobacco's interests. The money seems more like a bribe. And the Broen case wasn't the only work Big Tobacco did to downplay secondhand smoke. Just five years earlier, they waged a knockout war with the Environmental Protection Agency. In December of 1992, the EPA released a report called The Respiratory Health Effects of Passive Smoking. It connected secondhand smoke to lung cancer, along with up to 300,000 cases of bronchitis and pneumonia in babies. It was an exhaustive and meticulous study that was tough to discredit. But still, Big Tobacco refuted it. They commissioned a researcher named Fred Singer to promote what he called sound science. And unsurprisingly, Singer's tactic did exactly the opposite of what the name suggested. He worked with a PR firm to write articles downplaying the proven harms of secondhand smoke. The headline of one article discredited the EPA's evidence as, quote, junk science. Singer claimed the agency was taking an extreme, unsubstantiated stance on the topic, which was a completely false claim, by the way. He also said that the EPA didn't properly account for other factors that could contribute to lung cancer, like diet, air pollution, and genetics. But that was a weak defense. Granted, the EPA study wasn't denying that other variables caused lung cancer. What they were clarifying was that there was overwhelming evidence that secondhand smoke posed an additional risk. Still, Singer even accused the EPA of rigging the numbers to make secondhand smoke appear more dangerous than it actually was. It was another bold-faced lie. Luckily, many journalists and scientists were privy to his game and thought he was just Big Tobacco's henchman. 
They knew Singer's role was to obfuscate the harms of secondhand smoke and keep more government regulation off cigarettes. Such devious ingenuity kept the tobacco industry inspired, despite its unethical roots. In 1993, they even published a guide called Bad Science, a resource book, which taught people how to challenge scientific authority. It's pretty clear. Big Tobacco didn't just lie about science. They literally wrote the rule book for it. And if that's not enough proof of this theory, take it from District Court Judge Gladys Kessler. In 2006, she ruled that Big Tobacco was guilty of a years-long conspiracy to lie about smoking's dangers. In one section of her opinion, she blamed cigarette companies for misleading the public about the risks of secondhand smoke. There's ample evidence that the industry paid people to lie about a cigarette's hazards at every turn. Tobacco companies knew their products were dangerous. Yet to maintain their business, they colluded to cast doubts about all those hazards in the media, in court, and in the medical community. And they funded researchers to run sham studies and muddle the real science behind smoking. This theory is a 10. I have to agree again. It's a 10 for me as well. There's no shadow of a doubt. And the toll of this conspiracy was devastating. About 100 million people worldwide died from smoking-related diseases in the 20th century. At least some of these deaths could have been prevented if tobacco companies were honest about their products. That's true. And from what we know, the industry's propaganda campaign only spread to other sectors and gave them the playbook on how to suppress any science inconvenient to their bottom line. The examples are numerous. Fossil fuel companies funded studies that only existed to cast doubt in proven climate change science. The same strategy was used to downplay the prevalence of acid rain. And the NFL even hired cigarette lobbyists to cover up the dangerous side effects of head trauma. In the case of Big Tobacco, the line between suppliers and consumers was abused beyond anyone's wildest dreams and had fatal consequences. So for those miracle products that seem too good to be true, we should follow the science, especially if it suggests a grave trade-off might be lurking below. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with a new episode. For more information on cover-ups in the tobacco industry, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Merchants of Doubt by Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Jackson Knapp, with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Anya Bailey and research by Coleman Gray. 
Conspiracy Theory stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Pirates. For centuries, the world has been fascinated by them. Blackbeard, Charles Vane, and Bonnie. Who were they really? Real Pirates is a new Spotify original from Parcast. Join us starting November 15th as we bring the true story of pirates to life.